How many of you are familiar with a man by the name of Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott, all right, good. Should be a familiar name to us. This man was a man with a, with a heart for the unreached. He desired to proclaim the gospel where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. And while being trained in linguistics, he was told of a people group down in the jungles of Ecuador. A people who were known only as the Alcas, the Alca Indians. And that name, Alca, translates savages. They were known as savages. This was not the name that the tribe had for themselves, but it was the name that outsiders had of that tribe. Well, he moved to Ecuador to begin working along with four other men on a strategy to seek to make contact with these savages so that they might share the gospel of Christ with them. Well, in the process of that, several times they flew over the area where this tribe was and they could see some individuals down there on the ground. And so they devised this strategy that they would rig up a loudspeaker on the plane that as they flew over, they would speak down, trying to speak words of peace that the, to let them know that they were not there for, for harm, but they were there to seek to make friends with these individuals. And they would airdrop supplies and, and, and gifts of, of tools and, and food and things down to the people in order to seek to make an offering of peace with these individuals that they might make contact in this way. Well, after a while, they began to seek to make landings amongst the people, and so they found a place suitable for a landing that was not far off from where the tribe was. And they landed there, and there were some individuals from the tribe that came out, and they had a very positive interaction with them at first, where they, they had... It was difficult to converse with them because it was a, a foreign language, an unknown language, but, but they interacted with them. In fact, one of the men from the tribe ended up coming into the airplane and taking a ride in the aircraft on that very first meeting, which is a, a remarkable thing. Well, they landed back, they returned the man back to his tribe, and, and they took off again, and the men were elated at how excited this, the first contact went, how well things went. They made contact with this tribe and, and now they were excited for how they were going to begin to build this relationship with this tribe so that they may bring the good news of the gospel of Christ with them. However, for reasons that were unknown for decades, the next time the men landed on that beach, rather than being greeted in the like manner that they had been greeted previously, Men from the tribe ambushed these missionaries and murdered every last one of them. Speared them through. When Jim Elliot and others were preparing for their approach, they knew that they were treading on dangerous ground. They knew the reputation of these Alcas, these savages, they had this nickname for a reason, right? They were called the savages for a reason. This was a headhunter tribe that was trapped in a cycle of revenge killings with other tribes surrounding them. And so they would live, they, these tribes would live, and they were constantly at war with one another. And murder was bound up in their hearts. Completely isolated from the outside world. And they knew that, they would, that reaching them would be challenging and dangerous. And yet they chose to do so anyway. They chose to pursue them anyway. Why? Why was Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the other 
pilots and the other missionaries that were with them? Why did, were they willing to risk their very lives for this people group? Following his death, his wife was reading his personal journal seven years prior to his death while he was still in training to go to this people group. He was reflecting on a passage of Scripture and wrote these words, and you've, you've likely heard these words. These words have been spoken numerous times. But Jim Elliot wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This, of course, is a reflection on Luke chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, which states, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Jim Elliot was driven by this reality that there are some things more important than life itself. And he was willing to give up everything if it meant gaining a Christ. He says, you can't keep your life anyway. He says, you can't even hope to retain it anyway. Why would you not surrender that? It is better to give up what you cannot keep so that you can gain something that you cannot lose eternal life in Christ. Well, there is good news to the ending of the story of Jim Elliot. It's remarkable that his wives, the the wives of those missionaries ended up returning back to the land and, and ministering amongst the very individuals who murdered their husbands, developing the relationship with them. And they ended up coming to Christ and nearly the entire tribe came to Jesus Christ, came to faith in Him. And there's, there's wonderful books that are written that you can pick up. Through the Gates of Splendor is one of those books' titles, and another one is End of the Spear, which was also turned into a movie as well. Tremendous stories of faith, all brought about because of this commitment of a man who is willing to do and go wherever and whatever Christ would have him to do. Because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I would say this is something that the Apostle Paul understood as well. In fact, I'd say he understood it even more than Jim Elliot. The Apostle Paul suffered tremendously at the hands of those who would persecute him. But it's remarkable for Paul because Paul was on top of what had been considered the the top of the world from the Jewish perspective. Prior to his conversion in Christ, he would have claimed his heritage. It's as good as it gets. He was a true Hebrew, born into a good family, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He valued his citizenship and his heritage. But he also had personal accomplishments, educated under prestigious Pharisee, became a Pharisee himself and was just as zealous as Phineas in the Old Testament and attained it to a level of righteousness under the law that was unrivaled by his peers. If there were accolades, if there was something that he could have attained to, if there was the highest level of education that could have been offered in his day, Paul was there. This was it. 
No one looked at Paul and said, oh, that's a nobody. No, Paul was a somebody. He was a Pharisee. He had a prestigious education. It's if someone would have gone to, to Harvard Law School or something, attained their Ph.D., Like this was a very prestigious position that Paul was in. And yet he says, for all the social status, for all the recognition, for all the accolades from his accomplishments and his heritage, he says, I'm willing to give all that up for the sake of knowing Christ. We talked about this two weeks ago, about what that means to to surrender all of that. Why? Why was it that Paul, what was it that Paul hoped to gain from, from being willing to surrender these earthly accomplishments? And Paul identifies four things, and we're going to move through these things. This is going to take us through the end of the paragraph of verse 11, but there are four things that Paul identifies of what he gains in Christ. First is that he gains a relationship with Christ himself, who then in turn grants justification sanctification, and glorification. Let's read our text. This is Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing a Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means, But by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In verse 7, Paul looks back on his this list of his heritage and his accomplishments that he listed out in verses 4 through 6, all the things that that might have been considered gain to his life, all the things that, that made him be a prestigious person in the world's eyes. He says, I count those things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And we know that he really did suffer loss. Right? Paul, Paul's in prison as he writes this letter. Right? He suffered greatly because of his faith in Christ. He likely suffered estrangement from his family. His past zeal for the law meant nothing to the Pharisees who once called him an ally, now view him as a traitor and seek to persecute him. All his learning and all his studying didn't grant him any privilege in the eyes of his persecutors. Whatever had been gain is now loss. Again, Paul is using financial terminology as he reckons with what he has experienced in his Christian life. The things that I thought were gain, I, I thought this was a net positive in my portfolio. I look at it again and it turns out actually that's that has me in the red. I'm in debt here with these things. I thought these things were gained to me, but, but in reality, it's, it's causing me debt. When confronted with the gospel of Christ, he realizes that he is deeply in the red without any hope of repaying the debt. 
Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, he speaks of a, a record of debt that stands against us before Christ. When we do not have the righteousness of Christ, we stand before him in debt. Paul says there's a record of debt that, that cries out against us. It testifies against us that we are enslaved to sin. That's Colossians 2, 14. But then he says, I count these things as loss to gain Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Paul, first, in verse 7, he's acknowledging the list that he gave. Whatever things that I thought were gained to me, those things I count as loss. So his heritage, his accomplishments, all those things, verses 4 through 6, those are the things I count as loss. But now as he comes into verse 8, he kind of ups the ante here. He intensifies things. He, he really raises things up, escalates things to a further level. He says, everything, I, indeed I count everything, I count all things as loss. Now I have the ESV here, it says, indeed, that's the first word of verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss. But the Greek is actually a bit stronger here, and hence I like the New American Standard or even the NIV here when, they, when it says, what is more, or even more than that, one commentator wrote that it's better to translate this as, yes, I'll go further. Paul say, okay, yeah, the things that I thought were gained to me, I've got this list of my, my heritage and my accomplishments, I count those things as loss. But even more than that, even more than just the things I've already listed out, no, it's everything. All things I count as loss. The idea is that Paul is continuing to to ramp up this expansive expression that Christ is better than anything and everything that we might hold dear to in this life. Everything that we might hold dear to in this life. Whatever was gained, Whatever I thought was to my benefit, I count as loss. Two weeks ago, we were looking at verses 4, and we we made it into verse 7 and 8 a little bit last time. Uh, That was two weeks ago, where Paul was contrasting the idea of putting confidence in the flesh, right? That's That's what he says at the end of verse 3, that we are the circumcision, that is to say, we are the the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And he contrasts it like, well, if if anyone had had reason to put confidence in the flesh, that's me. And he lists out why and then says that these things are lost for him. Indeed, everything, again, he, he escalates his language which should cause us to think and to reflect, well, what is it that we value in our lives that we think means something to us? And are we willing to surrender those things, if need be, for the sake of Christ? Maybe it's your last name. In this, I think down here in southern Indiana, I don't think my last name means anything. Chip Chase, it's kind of unique, but I don't really think it means anything. I have a grandfather and I have a great-grandfather who were both 
well-known pastors in the circles that they were in. In those circles, that last name does mean something. Would I be willing to give up my last name and everything that it might have meant for the sake of Christ? Maybe you put confidence that you were born in a Christian home. Would you be willing to give that up for the sake of Christ? Would you be willing to even surrender your American citizenship if it meant gaining Christ? I'm not presenting this as something that you actually have to make a decision about, but but think about what the things that we hold dear in this life, the things that are valuable to us. Will, are we willing to surrender those for the sake of Christ? Paul says that I'm willing to count all things lost. One of those things that he lists out, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's his citizenship. That's part of who he is, the people group that he associates with. If you are forced to make a decision between trampling upon the flag or trampling upon the cross, what would you walk upon? We have to think about this. We have to think about this. Our baptism. Taking communion. We observed it this morning. Church attendance. Putting your confidence in reciting a prayer or even asking Jesus into your heart. If our confidence is in the flesh, if our confidence is in things that we do, if it's in reciting a prayer, it is a misplaced confidence. All these things that we once thought gain or even more than that. Things that I haven't even mentioned. Whatever it is I might cause us to have confidence in the flesh. All these things, would you be willing to surrender those to gain Christ? I'm going to challenge us just a little bit further right now. And again, I'm not suggesting that this is going to be a reality that we will have to face, but I'm seeking to challenge us in our minds to think about what it is that Paul was willing to surrender and what is it that we would be willing to surrender if we had to. Where does your confidence lie? Would you be willing to give up everything you hold dear for Christ? Would you take the vaccine that you're opposed to if it meant gaining Christ? Would you wear a mask for the rest of your life? Would you rather live with a Democrat in the White House for the next 50 years and be with Christ than have a conservative in the White House and die in your sins? Again, I'm seeking to challenge us on where our confidence lies. Not that we actually have to make a, make a choice in these areas, but consider where does our confidence live, where does it lie? Because the reality is, is if, we talked about, if we talked about Jesus as much as we talk about masks and vaccines and all these things that go around in the life around us, what would our conversations look like? How many people would have heard the gospel a hundred times over? And you know, we focus on the things of this world. Now, I'm starting to get a little sidetracked. But we have to think about these things, about what it is that Paul was willing to surrender, the things that he held dear. Would we surrender our rights? Paul did. He's in jail. He's literally in prison because of his testimony for Christ. How far are we willing to go? What are we willing to surrender?
he says he's willing to give up these things. Why is he willing to do so? In order to gain and know Christ. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It's because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's gaining Christ. Surpassing worth or surpassing value. Again, he's, he's using financial terminology to, to communicate a point here. It's not that his debt is just getting wiped out and he's being brought back to zero from his debt, from the red. Now he's into the black. He's at zero. Yay, I'm at zero. No, he's actually gaining something more valuable. And what more value can you get than Jesus Christ himself? And again, it's not just information about Jesus. He says that I might know Christ. You know, last week we, we took a little bit of a break from our Philippian series to, to examine a little bit the doctrine of Jesus Christ, Christology. Seeing from how, how Second John calls us that if anyone does not abide in the teaching or the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God or Christ. And so the information about Christ, the doctrine of Christ, that is crucial for our lives. But here Paul is not speaking about mere information. Right, he's not speaking here about things that, that comes into our minds. But rather, he's talking about a person. Not talking about a doctrine. He's talking about a person. He doesn't simply want to know about Christ. He wants to know Christ himself. This is an intensely personal thing for Paul to say. He says, The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's not just the Lord, he's my Lord. There's a personal relationship there with the Savior. Paul says he's not simply adding knowledge to his brain, but he's adding a relationship with the one who created him. Now let's think about this for a moment. Think about what Paul has already communicated about who Jesus Christ is. We think back to that wonderful passage from chapter 2 when he describes Jesus Christ, though he existed in the form of God, everything that that means to be God, clothed in beauty and splendor and majesty. And yet he took on humanity, became a human being, and died the death of a criminal on a cross, suffering shame and reproach. And yet God has raised him up seated him at the right hand of God the Father on high, and, and one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul says, he's my Lord. I know that one. I have a relationship with that one, the one who is exalted above all things, who will one day come again. That's my Lord. And I have again this, this personal relationship with Christ. Do you know Christ? Not just know about Christ intellectually. Like, okay, yeah, I know this is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. That's important. I'm not, I'm not denigrating that at all. That is critical for us. We talked about that last week. But do you know Christ? Do you know Him personally and experientially? Have you, have you experienced His love in your life? Have you experienced the, the joy that comes that can, only, that can only be explained through the gospel of Christ? 
The tenderness that comes through difficult times of sorrow and loss. Have you spent time with Him in His Word and prayer and learned from Him and been taught by Him through His Word? Do you know Jesus Christ? Paul says, I suffered the loss of all things for this purpose, to know Christ. It's not for no reason. Not just because, oh hey, now it's, it's, I'm, I don't have these things in my life anymore. No, I'm gaining something. A personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That relationship is so valued to me that I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things and consider them as dung. You know, I mentioned this two weeks ago about this, that phrase, I, I consider them as rubbish, is what the ESV translates it as. I consider them as rubbish. Some of your translations might say dung or refuse. I talked uh, about this concept that some people think that Paul was actually using a, a cuss word in this text and that he was using that cuss word to make a strong point. And I do not take that view. I do not believe Paul was, was using vulgar language even to communicate a strong point here. The Greek word that is used here is the Greek word skubalon. It's used in medical texts. It's used of philosophers. It's used by geographers, by historians, by religious teachers. It's used by people and in places that you do not expect vulgar language to appear. This is not Paul cussing in order to make a point. And anyone that says so, I don't even want to go there. But this word isn't shocking because it's a cuss word. It's shocking because it means poop. It's dung. It's refuse. It's it's excrement. He says, whatever I thought was gain to me, these things that I hold near and dear, my citizenship, my education, these things that I think are valuable, that might earn me something before God, all these things, it's not valuable. It's dung. Your baptism. It's poop. The sinner's prayer. It's feces. Your American rights. Excrements before God. We don't get to stand before God and say, hey, look, I stood for rights. The only thing we can stay before God is in the righteousness of Christ. Whatever else we may put our confidence in, it's worthless. It's revolting before God. But Paul says, because Christ is better, I'm delighted to give up my pile of feces. I'm delighted to give that up. Because I'm gaining Christ. I'm gaining His righteousness. That's a no-brainer. Of course I'll trade this for that. I'm gaining Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that he not only gains this personal relationship with Christ, but, he, but Christ grants him other things as well. Look with me at verse 9. Paul says, and be, uh, well, I guess for his sake I suffered the loss of all things, back in verse 8, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To be found in Christ is a reference to being united to Him by faith. When we must stand before God, if we are not found in Christ, then we must stand according to our own merits. And we do not want to be found in that position in that day. 
We do not want to be found in a position holding forth a pile of feces before God and saying, this is why you should let me into your kingdom. We do not want to be in that position. If we are not in Christ, then that is all we will have to offer God in the day of judgment. But if we are found in Christ, it is only then that we are granted entrance into the kingdom. And notice what it says. What it means to be in Christ. It says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul says, I I don't have righteousness from the law. Self-righteousness and being in Christ, they're contradictory If anyone had a law-based righteousness, it would have been Paul. But Paul says, no, not even me. I don't have a righteousness of my own. He he actually even goes so far as to say in other places that the law brings death. Romans 7.10 says, the very commandment that promised life proved it to be death to me. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6, this says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, and when he says of the letter, he's referring to the law, I believe, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Sunday evenings, we're working through the Ten Commandments, and we're looking at what the law of God says, and There are some that believe that if we could just keep those Ten Commandments and say, hey, we're doing all right and God will accept us because, hey, you kept the Ten Commandments. Good job. But as we're working through this, we're seeing, we're discovering that we can't keep those commandments. Our our, our sinfulness is so great that even as something as simple as the Ten Commandments, we violate even those. And so we do not have a righteousness of our own. To be found in Christ... If we are found in Christ, we are not so because of our own righteousness, for we have none. But praise God, there's the rest of verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but on the contrary, that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what is sometimes called alien righteousness. It's not something that we can claim for ourselves. It's something that is foreign to us, and yet God credits it to our account. Again, think of that financial terminology that Paul continues to use. It's, it's not enough that I was just brought back to zero. Rather, I'm actually gaining Christ. I'm gaining His righteousness. How many of you have heard the, the wallet illustration of the gospel? It's something that's, that's popular in, in some circles. It goes like this. We, if, we are, this is, if this is our life, this is who we are, and we have this wallet, and this wallet represents sin. And we have sin, and, and because we have sin, we cannot enter into God's presence, but, but we can't just let go of it. It, it, just, it. it doesn't come away. It's stuck to us. But Jesus Christ, being perfect, had no sin of his own, He died on the cross for our sin, and that if we believe in Jesus Christ, our sin gets credited to his account, and we no longer have sin and can now enter into God's presence. It's a simple illustration. It's good as far as it goes. In fact, I I think it can be helpful as far as it goes. But I think it stops short of what Paul is even communicating right here. It's not just that the sin was taken away, but rather, no, I actually have positive credit to my account. 
I'm no longer just not in debt, but I have positive credit because of the righteousness of Christ. I'm not just looked at as, as a slate wiped, wiped clean and now I can try to make it on my own again. No. God doesn't look at us as though we've never sinned. God looks at us now as though we've always obeyed because of the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to our account. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. It's not from our own merits. Right? This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not of works, not of the things that we do so that no one may boast. So we, when we come to know Christ, yes, we gain Christ, that relationship with Him. We gain justification from God, viewed righteous in His sight because of the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. We not only gain our justification, but we also gain sanctification. Verse 10, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Reflecting on this verse, I liked how one commentator put it. He says, to be found in Him positionally, that's the righteousness of Christ that's accredited to us, to be found in Him positionally is the basis for knowing Him relationally and personally. And that's what we have here now, to know Him. Now that we have the the righteousness of God credited to us, now we can know Christ. So he speaks of three things here, the power of His resurrection, sharing His sufferings, and becoming like Him in His death. And if we look at that, the order of that is a little bit strange to us. If we look at Jesus' life, Jesus, he suffered, and then he died, and then he was resurrected. And yet Paul now here speaks of the resurrection first, and then he speaks of suffering, and then of death. Well, Paul links the concept of resurrection to our sanctification in several places in Scripture. I'm going to turn to those really quickly. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but this is uh, Ephesians chapter 1. This is part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. He writes Ephesians chapter 1, verses, uh, beginning in verse 18. He says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is what works in you and in me who believe in him. Romans chapter 6, Paul links our sanctification, our obedience in Christ to his resurrection. Once again, verse 4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
Paul links the concept of a resurrection with the concept of walking in righteousness. And then he says in verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So, he says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul connects the concepts of the, the, of the resurrection of Christ. Now that he has been raised, if we are raised with him, we too should walk in newness of life. We too have the ability to walk in holiness. That we might know him and the power of his resurrection. That's power to walk as he would have us walk. We don't have to stay dead in our sins. But we can walk in his resurrection life. And then being conformed to Christ's likeness, being like his, conformed to his sufferings, being like him in his death. Paul, of course, shared in the sufferings of Christ in many ways. And all those, uh, Scripture says, all those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will suffer hardship. We will suffer scorn and mockery from those who do not believe. But Paul says that as he is conformed, that this process of suffering is actually conforming him to the likeness of Christ. It's shaping him. It's molding him in order that he may be more like Christ. And I think this is part of why Paul speaks with such joy throughout this letter. Right? The theme of joy is so present. He, he says, I rejoice, I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice. Even though we're going through these sufferings, I, I'm in jail, you're suffering, you're being persecuted, but we rejoice. Why? Because he's being conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's sanctifying him. It's making him more like Christ, teaching him how to walk in holiness and depend on him. And all this is, is leading to the place of glorification. Finally, the last verse we, under examination today, verse 11. He says, I'm becoming like him in his death, verse 11, so that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul speaks of the last day when his body will be resurrected. Again, this is a theme that is common to Paul as he speaks in many places. Romans chapter 8 says, if, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. There's a concept of suffering again. In order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he goes on to say in Chapter 8, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then at the conclusion of Paul's lengthy teaching on the nature of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul looks forward to that resurrection. Now we have to note here, Paul phrases things in an interesting way. He says that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And different translations render that slightly differently. And in some translations it almost sounds like he's He's casting doubt upon the possibility, like how maybe I, I kind of hope I'm going to get there, but I don't really know for sure. But I don't believe that that is how we should understand Paul's words. Paul is not uncertain about the outcome, but rather it's the process by which he's going to get there that he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. So rather than being a statement of uncertainty about the outcome, it's, it's a statement of expectation with uncertainty of the details about how that's going to come about. Paul says he doesn't know if he's going to be martyred. Earlier in the the book, he says he doesn't know if he's going to be killed or if he's going to be released. He doesn't know if Jesus is going to come back and rapture him home. All these things are in the realm of possibility. But one way or another, he is going to attain to the resurrection of the dead because of faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what he says. If by any means possible, if, if by one way or another, hey, I'm going to get there. I will attain to the resurrection from the dead, not because of his own righteousness again, but because of the righteousness of Christ. If we put confidence in the flesh, none of this is ours. Until we realize that we have nothing of ourselves to give, we will have nothing of ours to gain for our lives. Until we realize that we have nothing of ourselves to give, we will have nothing to gain. It is only when we see that everything that we think is gain for us, that we are willing to surrender that for the sake of Christ. If we are willing to suffer the loss of all things, anything that we previously valued for the sake of Christ, not only will we gain this personal relationship with Christ, we will seek the promise of our justification, we will Excuse me. Not only will we gain a personal relationship with Christ, but we will gain the promise of our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification through the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. What are you willing to surrender for the sake of Christ? Where is your confidence today? You know, I kind of threw out some hypotheticals of what would you be willing to do in order to gain Christ? There's the flip side of some of that as well. Are you willing to stand for what is true? Willing to stand for what the Scriptures say, even if it means the loss of your job, even if it means the loss of social influence and being canceled on social media or whatever else. What are we willing to surrender for the sake of Christ? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, it challenges us, causes us to think and to reflect. What is it that we hold dear? Where is our confidence being placed? Paul suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. Lord, there may be a day coming when we have to suffer loss in order to stand for truth, in order to stand for what is right, in order to stand for Christ. I pray that we would have the courage and the willingness to do so. Lord, we, as we look upon what we stand to gain in Christ, Lord, it's everything. A personal relationship with the one who has made us, the one before every knee will bow. We can bow before you now and rejoice in our personal, ongoing relationship with you, who then grants us our justification, a right standing before the Father, having a righteousness not of our own, but of Christ who stretches us, who purifies us, who strengthens us even as we go through hard times, even as we suffer for Christ, we are conformed to the image of Christ and walk in the resurrection life that is provided for us in His resurrection, knowing that we will one day attain to the resurrection where one day our our body and soul will be reunited once again in our glorified state. We will praise you for all eternity. We look forward to that day with great anticipation. We rejoice in knowing what is ours in Christ. And Lord, though these, these passages challenge us and cause us to think and reflect, I pray that it would also cause us to rejoice for what we see that we have in you. We're no longer in debt if we have faith in Christ. But we have the righteousness of Christ. We praise you. We thank you. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.